week we are back in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been jumping around quite a bit in the last little while, and part of that's just scheduling, and part of that was I had a sermon ready from Stephanie, and, uh, and so now we're back in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 31 to 40, uh, not to 42, to 37. But as we begin, I just want to remind us that Jesus is in this teaching, he begins to talk about this kingdom heart. And, and way back in the beginning, Chandra began with the Beatitudes and spoke of the way in which Jesus is preparing our hearts, giving us this kingdom heart. And one of the things that I've just been reminded of, and as we talked about in this series, is that, that an iceberg is a great example, right? An iceberg only shows 10% of its mass. But 90% of it exists below the surface, out of sight of everyone and everything else. And, and I always think when Jesus is talking to us, what he is interested in is not only the 10% that everyone else can see around us, as, as good as that is, um, and as much, but, but Jesus is interested in transforming that 90%, the parts of us that nobody else will ever see, the parts of us that only God can see. And even as we continue in the next chapter into chapter 6, we see that that becomes true of our worship as well. That God is not just interested in the 10% of our worship that everybody sees, your almsgiving, your, your good deeds, your showy prayer. God, God's like, that doesn't matter. What matters is that 90% that nobody else sees, that, that, transform, that God wants to transform that 90% of us. And so as Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things we see is the way that Jesus keeps taking the common uh, outward things that everybody else sees and does, and he deepens them, and he internalizes them. And so he says, you know, it's not just about whether or not you have an affair or you commit adultery. It's about the inner attitude of your lust. It's not just about your, uh, whether or not you kill your enemy or you get angry with them and, and do violence to another person. He actually cares about the, the anger or the bitterness that you might harbor within you that then gets expressed later is, as I hate you, as, as he says. Don't say that. Why? Because he's focused on the internal. And so the passage, um, sorry, Georgie Ladd, he says this. He says, the gospel must not only offer a personal salvation in the future life of those who believe, it must also transform all the relationships of life here and now, and thus cause the kingdom of God to prevail in the world. So there's a future reality, a future life that is promised to all who follow Jesus. Absolutely. But if what, what some have done is they've taken the Sermon on the Mount and they've pushed it to that future life. This is what it will be like one day. As, as Mennonite brethren, as people who are Anabaptists, we have always historically held that the Sermon on the Mount is immensely practical for here and now. That God wants to build a people here and now who bring the kingdom as incomplete as it is, and as not yet as it is, but we bring the kingdom here and now. We begin to show the world what it's like when God reigns on earth as it is in heaven, in the way that we relate to each other, in the way that we relate to God. And so the Sermon on the Mount is this immensely practical, meant-to-be-lived-here-and-now uh, scripture for us. And so he's talking about how do we relate to people in our anger, in our lust, in our vows and divorce, as we will talk about here. And so this is the passage. It says, it was said, Jesus says, 
Whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual unfaithfulness, forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said that those who live long ago don't make a false, solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you, you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it is God's throne. You must not pledge by earth because it is God's footstool. And you must not pledge by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than that comes from the devil. So let's, it's interesting in the Gospel of Matthew that this, both of these themes actually come up again later in the book. Jesus will talk about pledges or oaths, and he'll talk about divorce again. And so let's just read those passages so that we have kind of this broader sense. And I'm not going to read the whole piece here from Matthew 23 in which Jesus talks about oaths. It, it's a little repetitive, and so, you know, he goes on. But here's, here's what he says to the Pharisees. He says, How terrible it will be for you blind guides who say... If people swear by the temple, it's nothing. But if people swear by the gold in the temple, they are obligated to do what they swore. You foolish and blind people, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold holy? And then a little bit later in verse 21, he says, Those who swear by the temple swear by it and everything that's part of it. Those who swear by heaven swear by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. And then regarding divorce, Matthew 19 It goes like this. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. The Pharisees asked them, Then why did Moses say that the law that in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of a divorce and send her away? They asked you they asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it is not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples then said to him, if this is the case, then it's better not to marry. Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said. Only those whom God helps. Some are born eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, and some make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. So there's two pieces here, and I'm going to kind of quickly talk about the, the pledges, the oaths, and then we'll spend a bit more time talking about what Jesus was saying about divorce. But let me suggest to you that there are two things happening. There's this cultural, common wisdom of the world, and then there's what Jesus is, his inward challenge. And so the first one is that this, the cultural wisdom of Jesus' day, and I would suggest exists today, is that divorce is simply no big deal. Just do it. Inward challenge, though, of Jesus is to check our motives for divorce against our selfish desires. 
recognizing the importance of this marriage. Second piece is there's a cultural wisdom that says, hey, you should just, you know, you should keep your word. If you're making, you know, a promise or something like that, keep your word. And Jesus takes that even farther and says, actually, don't even make an oath. Don't even go into that. uh, Just be a truthful person in everything you say. So let's talk about these. First, this pledge is an oath. I'm going to be really quick here because uh, it's really, really very simple. We saw in the Matthew passage that people were playing truthfulness games. These were the games of like, well, if you swear by the temple, then it means one thing. If you swear by the gold, then it means something else. If you swear by this, then it means that. And I was thinking about this today because my girls were sitting around the table and they were talking about something. They said, I don't know, kids, have you ever done this? Like, do you pinky promise? Right? As if, if I promise with my pinky, then that means more than if I just say, I promise. We grade our truthfulness. And Jesus says, there is no grading of truthfulness for the people of God. You are called to be honest, and every word you say should be truthful. There's no honesty games. There's no scaling of the truth for the people of God. We simply speak the truth. We are honest. We reflect in God then the truthfulness, the honesty, the goodness of God as we do this. So we are called to reflect God's covenant faithfulness by being faithful people who speak the truth. That's all I'm going to say about pledges because I think it's pretty simple. Divorce and remarriage is one of those issues that isn't an issue. It's people. This is hard for me to talk about because... That's people's story here in our congregation. So we're not talking about an issue. We're talking about people whose lives are affected and hurt. And, uh, and so I think it's good for us to remember that. N.T. Wright has this quote. It's interesting. He says, It must be stating the obvious to point out that if people knew how to control their bodily lusts on one hand and we're committed to complete integrity and truth-telling on the other, there would be fewer, if any, divorces. If we lived the Sermon on the Mount well and truthfully, we would greatly reduce the number of divorces in this world just by doing what Jesus said. And yet we also recognize that there is a lot happening in this passage. I think that one of the things we hear Jesus doing in this passage is addressing a common cultural thing in the world that is happening. And and actually, Jesus is teaching us how to read the Bible in some ways too, right? Because because the, the Jewish people say, well, look, it's in the law. It's in the scriptures. The scriptures say we can get divorced. All we have to do is follow the formal, legal, normal pattern of things, and, and it's it's Okay. And Jesus says, well, that's, but that's not what my heart is. And so Jesus sides in a debate that's happening in his culture with the ultra-conservative side of the debate. He says, no divorce except for in the case of sexual unfaithfulness. But I appreciate so much Scott McKnight's teaching on this in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, He says this, he says, In a cracked world, even followers of Jesus will commit sins that destroy marriages. The reality is that even those of us who follow Jesus are cracked and broken. We're not 
perfect. And we do things and we have things done to us that crack and destroy our marriages. And Jesus, I find really interesting that in both passages, Jesus doesn't get rid of the exception. Jesus says, yeah, that's in there. Moses put that there as a concession to your brokenness. But he doesn't say, and that doesn't count, you just have to do what I do. He, he keeps that concession in there. So just keep that in mind as we keep going. Really interesting. So when I was in seminary, we had a professor, Tim Geddard, who's just incredible. And, and Tim uh, had a lady, he was pastoring a church in Alberta, and he had a lady come to him and say, what does the Bible teach about divorce and remarriage? And Tim is a great teacher. He knows that it's much better if you discover the answer for yourself than if it's just given to you. So he says, well, why don't we spend a week? You go read the scriptures. Here's some passages about divorce. Why don't you go read those and then come back to me and we'll talk about it. So she goes away for a week and she comes back and she says, well, I've decided to get a divorce. Tim kind of shakes his head. He's like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? She's like, well, Matthew, uh, Matthew 5 says that divorce is only permissible if the wife has been sexually unfaithful. I've been sexually unfaithful, so I'm getting a divorce. And you go, what? <laughs> and Tim says, this is the moment I realized that, that doing concordance, uh, concordance Bible study doesn't work. Right? Concordance Bible study is I'll find all the verses about this thing, and then I'll make my theology based on these verses because what it does is it misses some of the other really important texts that are important in this case. So we see in this passage that if we come to this text and we're looking for the way out or the, for the reason to uh, do this, we're actually missing the point of the text. And what Jesus is saying to us here is that marriage is a significant and important thing that we should not take lightly. Here's, uh, I use this at Jaden and Kaylee's wedding, so they've heard this. And Scott McKnight talks about the way in which marriage is intended. This is, we'll, we'll talk about the exception in a minute, but for those of us who are married, want to get married one day, why is marriage, why does Jesus care about marriage so much? Because it reflects the sort of love of the Trinity and of God. So Scott McKnight uses these three words to reveal how marriage reveals God to the world. First of all, marriage is supposed to be for the other person. In marriage, we become our strongest advocate for the person that we are married to. We are for them, just as Jesus is for us. Jesus stands as our advocate and our defender. He, he is um, on our side. God is our defender and our strength. And in marriage, we become for each other. Marriage reflects the love of God that is with people. Jesus becomes incarnate, God with us. In marriage, we are with our spouse. We reflect the love of God in being with each other. And then Scott McKnight uses the word unto. Marriage is meant to be unto. I, I kind of prefer transforming, that there's an aspect of which when we marry, are married to each other, the love that we have for each other will transform us and change us. Um, it is an exclusive thing. It is, it is, it is um, unto the person for the purposes of God. And so God's love for all of us is with us, for us, transforming us. 
And that love then gets reflected in marriage, a good covenant marriage that is for, with, and transforming the other person. And so Jesus starts there. Marriage is a sacred covenant that reflects the love of God in the world, the covenant love of God. Good piece of marriage advice for all of you comes from Stanley Haueros. He says this, we will always marry the wrong person. There you go. I remember being in Sunday school once and having somebody tell me that there was no one person that I was supposed to marry. And I was being like, what do you mean? Like God clearly has like, I have to just find the one. And he's like, no, no, that doesn't work because if there's only the one, all it takes is one person not to listen to God to marry the wrong person and the whole thing gets thrown off. I was like, yeah, good point. Um, Blew my 12-year-old mind. Um, But Haueros says, look, you are never going to marry, you will always marry the wrong person. The person you marry will always be the wrong one. You never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary thing is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Marriage will transform us. It changes us. I am not the same person I was when I married Nikki. It's changed me. And so part of the task of marriage is to continually learn to love and care for the person to whom you are married. So we start there, right? I wanted to start with the purpose of marriage, the the intention of marriage, this challenge to us to learn to love. Because let's just admit that we're all kind of loophole people and we all like loopholes. We all know that when the speed limit's 100 on the highway, you can drive 109 and you're not going to get pulled over. And then I met my friend who's an RCMP officer and he said, well, actually, it's 120. And I said, really? So you mean, you're saying I can drive 119 and not get pulled over. So you know what I did. I started to drive 119, and so far, so good. Um, we all are loophole people looking for the excuse or the way out. And so the, I wanted to start with this, this call to the sacredness, the intention of marriage that Jesus starts with. But then we also recognize that the Bible does give permission for divorce. There are exceptions to Jesus' don't do it. The first one that Jesus gives is simply this, in the case of sexual unfaithfulness. And he's very specific. He says about a woke, like if she is unfaithful, which let's just admit we recognize and expand that beyond living in the world we do now. But then there's another exception in scriptures. Paul gives another one in the case of desertion of an unbelieving spouse. And so Paul, knowing fully what Jesus said, that there is only one, adds another one. And so let's just recognize that this topic, when we talk about divorce and remarriage, is complex. And it is one in which Christians do not all agree. So there are, in essentially... Oh, let's see here. Yeah, so there are essentially three views that evangelicals hold. The first one is that the Bible does give permission to divorce, but never to remarry. A second very common evangelical uh, um, kind of 
view on this is that the Bible grants permission to divorce and to remarry, but only in the case of adultery or abandonment. The third view is that the Bible gives permission to divorce and remarry for justifiable reasons. Now, there's massive volumes of theological works that go into all of this, and, and nobody, you know, there's different camps, and, there, and people disagree and argue, and so let's just admit that people who are trying to be faithful to the scriptures and to Jesus have a variety of opinions and perspectives on this. I'm just going to skip to the conclusion and give you mine. I'm number three. I think that the Bible gives permission for divorce and remarriage for justifiable reasons. And so part of the reason for that is the fact that, that Paul, knowing what Jesus said, expands the reasons for why. Remarriage is the whole piece. Really short summary of that is if there's justifiable reasons to get divorced, it implies a remarriage is possible. So, so to me, as I think through these, it seems just that if, if the scriptures show us that there are these reasons for why, if there are two, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the scriptures don't contain all of the reasons why. Maybe there's some other ones. And so I found Scott McKnight, again, very helpful. This is what he said. He said, let me rephrase this in my own categories. If covenant love is to be is commitment to be with someone, for someone, as someone who is working unto divine ends, then marriages are destroyed when one partner refuses to be with the spouse or becomes against that spouse, when a man obviously fails to be the husband that covenant love demands, or when a wife obviously fails to be the wife that covenant love demands. Grounds for divorce may be present because the covenant has been destroyed. There are times in which a spouse can turn against the other, in which the covenant is destroyed by one, and that those reasons can become part of it. So, nowhere in the scriptures does Paul or Jesus suggest that sexual, physical, emotional, or psychological abuse are justifiable reasons for divorce. And yet, they'll seem like a justifiable reason. If one spouse has turned against the other and is now abusing that covenant and that relationship, is that not justifiable? To me, it seems that it would be. And so, the trajectory that I see here is that there are other reasons than just the two that we see in Scripture. I don't believe that Jesus or Paul cover every possible ground for divorce. And abuse is a legitimate reason for divorce. It is a misuse of the, it would be a misuse of the teaching of just Jesus to say, no, you have to stay in that damaging relationship. See, I believe in reconciliation, right? That's the heart of the gospel, is, is restored relationships and renewed uh, healing between people. And, and that's, 
That's so much of what I believe and what I hold to. And as far as we are able, we should work for the reconciliation between people. We work to make things right. And I believe that in God's ideal world, there would be no divorce. But we live in a world that is cracked and broken, in which even believers make commit sins that break and destroy marriages. So I am strongly opposed to this cultural wisdom of our day that says divorce is no big deal. And I think as a church, we need to recall and reclaim that strong commitment to the permanency and sacredness of marriage. That this is what we are called to. That it is not... I was thinking about this the other day. Sorry, I'm going too long. But, um, a, a number of years ago, Nikki and I were having a bit of like, you know, tension, conflict in our marriage. And, and it seemed like one of those things where like we brought a counselor in using some electronic counseling services that were available through our, our plan, right? And, and Nikki's talking to this person and the person's like, well, just leave him. Just like, not happy, it's not working, leave. I mean, Nikki was like, but I don't want to leave. I want to make things better. <laughs> but we have within our, our cultural world in which people say, you're not happy, leave. You don't feel self-fulfilled, leave. It's not a big deal. You deserve your happiness and your fulfillment. And the call of the church is to work in our marriages the best that we can to, to hold those marriages together. To, to celebrate them, to, to learn to love the person that we are married to, even if it isn't what we thought we were getting into when we started. So we don't want to listen to that cultural wisdom that says divorce is no big deal. At the same time, though, I want to be like Jesus and acknowledge the brokenness of our world, and I understand that this world is cracked, that there are all kinds of reasons in which marriages break apart. And again, notice that Jesus, even though he says this is not God's will, also does not get rid of Moses' concession to the world in which we live. He doesn't remove that. And so I think it's wise for us to remember that the scriptures, and there's lots to it, that there's more than just this one passage in the New Testament. And, and that when we see that, we, we see that divorce can be justified. And that a justified divorce also holds out the possibility of remarriage. So as, as a pastor, <laughs> what do you do? I want to be a place for you, a safe place for you. I want you to know that I am committed to reconciliation. I'm committed to marriages, to help you in yours, to make it better. I'm also realistic enough to know that sometimes the covenant is destroyed and there are reasons in which sometimes divorce is inevitable and justified. And there's so much more that we could say about this topic. I know that not everyone agrees with where I land. There's a thousand books and a million pages written on it. Um, I think that's okay. I, I, I've wrestled with this a lot. Am I just seeking to tame the teaching of Jesus to make it palatable in the world that we live, not wanting to hurt people? I don't think so. 
So let me leave us with this thought. Let's conclude this way. God calls his people to be truthful in everything. No partial truths, no sliding scales of honesty, just honest, truthful people. And God calls us to fidelity, to faithfulness, to rugged commitment to each other. Let us surrender to the Holy Spirit and let the fruit of this goodness grow up in us. Let the Spirit of God grow more faithfulness in each of us. Let the Spirit grow love in each of us so that together we can reflect the kingdom of God to the world around us. Again, all of these inward challenges of Jesus reflect also the fruit of the Spirit. It's not just something that we pull up within us. There are times in which we just need the Spirit of God to grow faithfulness in us, to grow truth in us, to grow grow goodness in us. And so, um, I think that's all I want to say about that. Recognizing that it is very incomplete. I wanted us to close with a prayer. This is a, called the, the fruit of love, and it's a prayer to God to let him, the grower of spiritual fruit, grow up within us these fruits of the Spirit that we need. Um, let, let me read it once, and then we'll pray it together. And so it says, Dear Father, grower of spiritual fruit, let the fruit of the Spirit blossom mature, and ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these. Let me possess them. Since I belong to Christ, I have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let me live by the Spirit. Let me walk by the Spirit. Let me show no self-conceit, give no provocation, have no envy toward anyone else. Let me live in, through, and for King Jesus as he lives in, through, and for me and his whole church. Would you pray this with me?